Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello and welcome to New Books in European Studies. I'm your host, Nicholas Walton. In every programme, we talk about a new book that looks at Europe and find out what the author has to say. In this episode, that author is Richard Hall, who's written a really excellent book about a part of Europe that has suffered from far too much history, far more than most other regions in the world. And that place is the Balkans. It's an area that I know well from working there as a journalist and an area that I think of both as beautiful and fascinating. We had a lot to squeeze into this interview, so without any further ado, here it is. Joining me on the phone line from uh, Georgia today is Richard C. Hall, the author of The Modern Balkans, A History. Richard, can you hear me? Yes, I can. Yes, I, uh, I hope the, the sound quality goes through, but we had a couple of problems with Skype. Anyway, without any further ado, just so that we can make sure that your phone batteries don't run out, let's kick off. Can you just start off by telling us a little bit about your background? Well, I'm a a college professor. I've been uh, lucky. My gift, I think, was to know that I always wanted to do this ever since I was uh, able to read. And uh, I've been interested in history ever since I've been able to read. And it came sort of uh, down to the fact that American history was omnipresent, and I was more interested in European history and uh, the more obscure aspects. And I, uh, when I was young, I read a book called The Balkans in Our Time by Robert Lee Wolf, and I thought, wow, nobody knows much about this. And it, it, I sort of just pursued it ever since then. Uh, went to college, uh, served in the military for a couple of years, uh, not had anything to do with the Balkans, and uh, then I've been in teaching ever since. There's a quote that you come up with very early on, which I think really summarizes why I think the Balkans are just so fascinating. It, it, you start off by saying its geography was more complicated, its peoples more exotic, and its politics more arcane than the rest of Europe. It seemed to have a penchant for mystery and violence. Yeah, it's... It did. It did. Absolutely. And that's another aspect that interests me is uh, with the, the uh, since you mentioned the violence, the violent 20th century, the violence started there uh, in 1912 with the Balkan Wars, mm-hmm. uh, which is something I've studied. And uh, the, the 20th century begins with violence in the Balkans and the 20th century ends with violence in the Balkans. But your uh, book, of course, tries to cover far more than this. It goes quite far back in, 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 in time. And one thing that I was extremely impressed with, given how complicated the Balkans is, is just how much you managed to get into what seems to be quite a slim volume. That must have been a bit of a, bit of a hard task. It, it was indeed, but how I envisioned this book was to be uh, something I could use for my students. Mm-hmm. I didn't want to overwhelm them with detail, but I wanted to make the detail that I did use count. So in, in one way I saw it was as a textbook, really. Okay. Uh, and uh, I last taught a Balkan history class uh, uh, in, uh, in Bulgaria uh, with a group of study abroad students from, from Georgia. And uh, I sort of worked through this, the book, uh, while I was doing that. 
Okay, well, it, it is a model of clarity, but there are quite a few things that, that, that are very complicated that you've got in, in there to start off with. When people think of the Balkans, the initial thing is they think of the, the breakup of Yugoslavia and so on, but that's just the Welcan, Western Balkans. Of course, the Balkans right. as a whole, it's almost a peninsula hanging between the Adriatic and the Black Sea and going all the way down to, to Greece. Can you just that's give us a picture of this geography? Because it is quite complex. The, the, there's no firm geographic uh, definition for uh, the Balkans or southeastern Europe. Uh, so I just picked one, uh, starting, uh, as you mentioned, the Adriatic uh, to the west, the uh, Black Sea to the east, uh, the uh, Aegean to the south. Uh, the northern boundary becomes more problematic, and I tried to define it as using the uh, Carpathian Mountains. Uh, and a geographic definition isn't sufficient. Uh, a, some further kind of definition is necessary, and I uh, tried to do the, the Orthodox Christian, uh, add that, that into the mix and say this, this region, this geographic region, where Orthodox Christianity and later Islam have, were established. Uh, and so that, uh, that leaves a couple of sort of uh, mixed areas, Transylvania in the north, uh, Bosnia in the west, uh, that don't really fit in. It's a, one of the great border areas of Eurasia. It's where you've got Islam coming in from the southeast, you've got uh, Western Christianity, and then you have Eastern Christianity. And they all seem to come together in what has always been an area where government control has been quite marginal and empires have clashed. Right, right. Uh, there, there were empires uh, initially there. The first uh, history I try to talk about is the initial empires, the Romans, the the later Romans or Byzantines, and then the Ottomans, and 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 uh, in more modern times, when Western European political and cultural uh, uh, norms start to to come into this region and begin to be uh, viewed as desirable, then these old empire uh, paradigms don't work as well, uh, and this causes a search for new. Uh, ideas, new paradigms, and, and with that, unfortunately, has come a lot of violence mm -hmm. uh, in, in recent times. If you go back as far as you did into uh, Roman times and before, what is it that you learn about the Balkans that helps us to understand what we're looking at today? Well, that's a good question. Uh, what, what's directly applicable? Well, one thing is that uh, this has always been an area of great mixture uh, in terms of language, uh, in terms of uh, uh, geography, it's, it's, the geography breaks it up. Uh, I, I, I think that if, if we look back at the old empires, we, the, the Byzantine, the Ottoman, we see they weren't as pervasive uh, as perhaps uh, we like to, uh, some, some historians like to think. They weren't able to en enforce their power and their uh, norms uh, everywhere. Uh, this helps to explain, for instance, how the uh, Albanians sort of appear out of nowhere, or even the Romanians appear out of nowhere uh, at a certain point. Well, shall we look back and, and just maybe pick two or three particular dates that seem to resonate through history far beyond the actual uh, circumstances in which they, were, in which they happened? Um, the Orthodox Catholic Schism, that's uh, 1054, I think. 
I seem to think according to my notes. Um, that, that was one of the defining uh, moments uh, in the Balkans. I think so. Uh, this, this schism was a long time coming. Uh, it, it, that date is more or less a matter of convenience rather than of, of actual sudden break. Uh, but, but absolutely, the, the patriarchate in, uh, in, in Constantinople uh, regarded itself as the, the uh, leading uh, light of, of the of first among equals of the of the traditional patriarchates of the Christian Church, also with Rome, uh, Alexandria, Antioch, and Jerusalem. Uh, the one in Rome uh, assumed, in sort of the isolation of Western Europe, assumed uh, particular uh, powers, and and uh, this the schism brought with it some doctrinal issues, some ritual issues, and, and these haven't been resolved to the present day, and and aren't likely to be anytime soon. Uh, so here's two distinct Christian uh, cultures, and with them uh, political models and uh, language and so forth. And, of course, this is something that does go back to the days of the Roman Empire because this was the borderland between the western and the eastern sides of the, uh, of the Roman Empire. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. But, of course, it was uh, in the Roman Empire at a certain point, Greek was the language of education, even for those uh, people living in, in uh, the imperial capital in Rome. Uh, only, only more gradually did, did the empire become sort of lopsided, with the eastern part being more, uh, having larger population, having a greater economy, and being more important. That's why it gradually sort of shifts over to the east from the, uh, from the decaying west. And of course, that decay was quite long in the in the case of the Eastern oh. Roman Empire. If you go back to the book, I remember uh, when I first looked at doing history at Oxford, they uh, they had modern history started in goodness me, it was something like four hundred A.D. It was around the <laughs> the time that the Western Roman Empire disappeared. But of course, the Rome, the Eastern Roman Empire hung on for another thousand or so years. That's right. In, in until uh, fourteen fifty three, there's an important date for this region: mm-hmm. uh, the fall of Constantinople uh, to uh, the Ottoman Turks. Mm-hmm. The second of May, fourteen fifty three. Well, tell us a bit bit about this. Um, what we would now think of as, as a Turkish encroachment, but of course, it it wasn't Turkish as such. It was it was Ottoman. It came from uh, from the Ottoman Empire, which was founded by Sultan Osman. Am I correct? Yes. Yes, absolutely, and you're correct. You're absolutely correct about the, this. Is not Turkish. It's it's Ottoman, uh, essentially a a ruling family and culture. Uh, uh, in many ways, it's it's just a replacement of the of the Orthodox Christian uh, ruling culture with the Islamic uh, ruling culture. Uh, for the actual peasant, whether he be Christian or Muslim or or whatever. Uh, things don't change all that much. And this is something that uh, that was affecting the whole region even before um, Constantin- Constantinople itself fell, uh, because we have another one of the key dates in this period, and that's 1389, and that's the, the Battle of Kosovo Polya. Yeah, and you know, that's one that's, that's really controversial, just how, how key that date is, just how big of a deal that battle is. It has become uh, the, the enshrined in, 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 in the mythology of the Serbian people. This is who we are, the guys who fought and died at Kosovo Polja. Uh, but in fact, it's, uh, it's, in a historical sense, it's pretty obscure. Uh, who was uh, who was fighting whom? Why the fighting occurred? Uh, 
uh, it's not so simply that the Serbians were just uh, fending off an Ottoman invasion. Uh, there were Christians fighting on the Ottoman side. There were um, uh, other uh, language groups, I think maybe too early to say nationalities, fighting on the Serbian side. Uh, and the battle itself was not decisive. Uh, independent Serbian states uh, uh, persevered for another hundred years. Uh, but it's been accepted as the sort of uh, totem, uh, touchstone of Serbian identity. Absolutely. Uh, and, and maybe its importance is a lot greater in the 19th and 20th century than it was in the 14th century. Well, identity uh, is something that just keeps resurfacing uh, as, a, as a big theme in the area because it seems very, very fluid. There's lots of different ways in which people can identify themselves. And then when you have a, a, something like Kosovo Polu coming along, it, it almost assumes an iconic status. It is for Serbs even now, uh, the time when they look back and say, well, this was, uh, this was when we stood up and tried to defend Christianity. And so many of the things that we now have in the Balkans date back to the fact that we lost that battle. Oh, that's, that's, how, that's how the Serbian national uh, paradigm vision, envisions this. Uh, it, it's much more difficult to say that's what the, the warriors uh, of 1389 were fighting for. But in, in present-day circumstances, that's how it's perceived. Okay, let's try and um, impose a bit of order on all of the on all of the the chaos in the Balkans. We have basically uh, an area that's always been between various empires. Um, It's been part of the 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 Roman Empire, split between the West and East, which has meant that there's a growing schism between the Orthodox world and the Catholic world. And then you start to have the encroachment of the uh, of the Ottomans, bringing Islam in from the south southeast. So then you have these three empires kind of crisscrossing, these three ways of thought crisscrossing in the region. And you also have various identities, almost um, sort of embryonic nations starting to emerge here. We've just mentioned the, the Serbs. We have others like the Bulgarians. Can, can you just shed a bit of light on, on what type of, um, uh, well, as I said, they're hardly nations at that time, but they are starting to think of themselves as, as fairly coherent people. What have we got at that, at that time? Well, in the, in the 19th century, uh, the, the, the first idea that comes into, the, uh, into this region from Western Europe is the idea of nationalism, that, that people ought to, uh, this, this is an enlightenment idea, that, that people's natural uh, organization is based upon their shared history and language and culture. Uh, and uh, uh, the, the Greeks... Uh, are able to pick up on this. Hey, we had a history going back uh, 2,000, uh, 3,000 years, and then uh, uh, the Serbs and Romanians and then the Bulgarians, they're, they're all trying to see themselves in terms of this this Western idea. Now, uh, there were medieval states that bore the name Serbia or Bulgaria or, in the Greek case, the, the uh, Empire of Constantinople, but these weren't necessarily national states. They had uh, ruling uh, uh, elites uh, that were, uh, in, in the case of Bulgaria, for instance, uh, eventually uh, at first uh, Turkic-speaking and then later uh, Slavic-speaking, and in the Serbian case, uh, Slavic-speaking. Uh, but the, the, the mass of the people did not didn't view themselves in this way. Uh, but now with this intrusion of the Western idea in the 19th century, they're looking for models and they're seeing that 
hey, there was a Serbian state back in the in the twelfth uh, and thirteenth and fourteenth century. There was a Bulgarian Empire going back as as, as early as the ninth uh, century. You know, and so they adopt these sort of as models. And and as I was saying quite a bit earlier, uh, government control has always been quite marginal. So you're saying that yes, you might have had. Uh, elites able to impose some kind of kingdom or or some other kind of uh, polity from the Middle Ages there, but it was still a very very mountainous, remote area full of peasants who, right. who possibly never ventured further than their own village or maybe the the local market five Absolutely. ten miles away. So, in other words, the political penetration was always quite weak. Yes, yes, I, I think the p- political penetration was always weak due to the uh, to the difficult topography. Uh, the mountains, the the narrow river valleys, uh, and, and this brought in a certain amount of isolation. And uh, besides that, in, in more modern times, the the dual authorities of the the ortho, or the I should say that the the Ottoman authorities were quite content to allow the the Christian inhabitants, the Orthodox Christians, alone as long as they they paid taxes and and performed a couple other services. And and so essentially the 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 governing law of the region under the Ottomans uh, was the the Christian law, mm-hmm. uh, the Orthodox law. And of course, Christianity and and other religions were actually uh, given almost a special status under the Ottomans. That's right. Uh, the the uh, the Orthodox patriarch in uh, Constantinople was a, a very high official uh, in the Ottoman Empire. Uh, he he rated, I think, he was the second or third highest official in the whole state. Mm-hmm. Uh, and as long as he was loyal, and as long as uh, taxes were paid, especially during the the high point of the the functioning point of the Orthodox, I'm, I'm sorry, Ottoman state. Uh, after the 18th century, the Ottoman state uh, is overwhelmed by corruption and inefficiency and and inertia, and, and then these, these issues become uh, a little more problematic. But while it's functioning well, then, then the, the Christians are, are in some ways, uh, they're better off, they think, than uh, under the previous regimes. Would it be fair to say that throughout a lot of history, because of its remoteness and because of its, uh, its, its frontier nature, life in a lot of these areas could be, I know it's a pejorative term, but you could almost say it's fairly backward. It's certainly uh, not as advanced as some of the great centers of civilization. No, yeah, that's, that's true. Until, until the 18th century, uh, this is a backward region allowed more or less to... Uh, alone by the again the Ottomans are interested in getting taxes. Uh, they're interested in in uh, uh, a couple of other things. They, they until the uh, 16th century they imposed what they call the devshmi, a, a child tax uh, on the Christian populations. There, they, uh, this is good and bad. The, the uh, boys were taken and converted to Christ, or to Islam and. Most of them uh, went into the uh, military, the Janissaries. About 10% went into the administration. Mm-hmm. Uh, this was a chance for great uh, wealth and power uh, for Christian peasant boys from the Balkans. But uh, it also was a, more or less the end of the uh, family relationships with their uh, Christian parents. Uh, but but your point is quite right. This is uh, this region 
during the time of Ottoman rule, falls seriously behind the rest of Europe in terms of economic uh, and political development. You mentioned the 19th century, and that's when things start to change, and part of it is because of the, uh, the decaying nature, certainly of the Ottoman Empire, and perhaps a little bit later, the, uh, the Habsburg Empire, which is... Uh, owning parts of the, the region from the north. Um, and this, of course, starts to create a little bit of competition. And uh, this t- brings us to another de- date that we might as well mention, and that is 1878 and the Congress of Berlin, which, which you suggest in your book that it, it's laying down quite a few problems as these empires struggle to keep control. Yes, this, this is a, the Congress of Berlin uh, was an attempt by the, the six great powers of Europe, the, the more or less... Uh, overseers. Uh, uh, these were these were just uh, Great Britain, France, uh, Germany, Italy, and Russia, and Austria. Now, just I'm hungry. More or less, oversee things in the Balkans. The Congress of Berlin overturned a, a earlier settlement that year called the Treaty of San Stefano, in which Russia, uh, after having defeated the Ottoman Turks in in the War of 1877-78, imposed a large Bulgarian state. Uh, in the Balkans, and this was widely seen as a cat's paw for Russia. Mm-hmm. And so, this is where so, we see set certain trends, such as, uh, as you were saying, the 19th century sort of search for nationhood, all coming together and starting to fundamentally change the relations in, in the Balkans. That's right. That's right. That's absolutely right. Uh, and and, and the, the Austrians and the, Britain and the, and the British objected to the, a, a big Russian presence in that region. And so with the Congress of Berlin, uh, much smaller Bulgaria emerged, and uh, Serbia, Romania uh, became formally, in a formal sense, independent, finally, of the Ottoman Empire. Uh, and uh, none of these countries were satisfied, though. They all, the Bulgarians especially, but all saw themselves as, as wanting more of the Ottoman Empire, of wanting to have all of their co-nationals within their political borders, uh, because that was the road to modernity. That was the road to development. That's what the Italians had done. That's what the Germans had done. And that's what the Bulgarians, the Greeks, the Romanians, the Serbs, would have to do in order to get to be big and strong and rich. Uh, like their Western European counterparts. This brings us back to what you started off talking about, and and that is a a particularly bloody history in the 20th century, which was bloody for many, of course, around the world, but the Balkans seems to have have suffered from start to finish. And many of the things that we've just been talking about, the themes and, and this search for nationhood, the competition between grand empires, some, some waxing, some waning, uh, it all comes together in a fair bit of bloodshed. It kicks off the, uh, the 20th century, I should say, um, with a series of, of what could be viewed as small wars, but certainly contribute a lot to what happens afterwards. Yeah, the, the uh, most important of these, I think, that you're, you're uh, getting at is the Balkan Wars of 1912 and 1913, when, when the uh, smaller Christian Balkan states uh, more or less uh, ally together to expel the Ottoman Turks from, from, the, uh, uh, from the region. Mm-hmm. What they're concerned about is that the, the young Turks who had taken over in 1908 might be able to pull off a viable reform. And if that's the case, uh, then, uh, then the, a Bulgarian or, or Greek or Serbian national state would be, would be impossible. Um, so uh, these 
wars progress, uh, start in 1912, October 1912, the, to the surprise of all, including themselves, uh, the small Balkan states uh, rapidly defeat the Ottomans uh, and, and virtually expel them from Europe. But uh, they simply can't agree how to divide the spoils. Uh, and in the summer of 1913, they start fighting among themselves. It's, it turns out to be everybody against Bulgaria, more or less. And the uh, the Ottomans uh, are able to to use this opportunity to get back uh, uh, a, a toehold in Europe. And uh, uh, nobody's left satisfied with the result. And, and in effect, the, the fighting that begins in 19 October 1912 continues on through the first for this region. Uh, the First World War is just a continuation of the fighting that began in 1912. So it's really a sort of a six-year war mm-hmm. that leaves them all exhausted, all in one way or another defeated, uh, uh, and all uh, developmentally uh, slowed. And in the midst of all of this, we have yet another one of these dates where things start to turn. Uh, if we go to 1914 and we have a, a young Serb nationalist called Gavrilo Princip on the streets of Sarajevo and we have Archduke Ferdinand. Yes, and, and again, the the the, Austri- the the Bulgarians, the Serbs, the Greeks—they've uh, already been fighting since 1912, and, and and there's already been a series of conflicts with the between the Serbs and the Austrians, uh, mainly over Albanian issues, uh, when uh, uh, Franz Ferdinand uh, blunders into the streets of, of Sarajevo and, and uh, gets himself shot. Mm-hmm. Uh, After and, a couple of uh, wrong turnings, uh, yeah, yeah, and also on the auspicious day of uh, it was the anniversary of Kosovo Polio. Uh, that's well, right. Wasn't that's it? right. Twenty eighth June. Yes, Vidov Don. It's called or Saint Vitus Day. <laughs> have you actually seen the bridge where it happened? I have not. It, I can tell you, it's it seems quite an innocuous little bridge. I mean, certainly the river that runs through the centre of Sarajevo is is quite a small one. Although, of course, when there's flood water or melt water, it grows quite considerably. Sure. But the bridge itself and and that little corner seems such an innocuous spot. And certainly, when I was living there, there, were, there was a little plaque on the wall just saying what happened there. And then they reopened this little, I think, two room museum, beautifully presented. But you know, you you think, well, goodness me, this is when this is when suddenly the Balkan Affected the history of the whole world. This is where the whole of the First World War kicked off. It's still, even after all the fighting and uh, uh, the Serbian nationalism and everything, they still maintain that in Sarajevo? Yes, yes. Uh, A friend of mine actually said that he knew where the grave of Gavrilo Princip was. Uh, I never saw it myself, but apparently he he died after a fair bit of torture from the Austro-Hungarian police. Well, he died uh, in 1917 of tuberculosis. Okay, right. Okay, well, I've got to to go back to that friend of mine and tell them that they were slightly wrong then. well, he may, he may, I, I well imagine he was tortured, he, but the, the Austrians couldn't execute him at the time because he was a teenager. Ah, oh, yes. Uh, and so they, they put him in, you know, probably ensured that he'd get infected or something, I probably didn't have to do that, but he died in prison in 1917, uh, uh, exactly how, I, I don't know, and I don't know where he was imprisoned. Mm-hmm. Well, rather than get into the whole of the First World War, uh, we can talk a little bit about this this continuation of the wars that you were talking about earlier. Uh, I'm reading a book at the minute, uh, Neil Ferguson's book about the First World War, The Pity of War, and I've just seen the casualty lists. Uh, Something like 25% of Serbian men died. It was extraordinary. 
it's extraordinary. And, and similar figures exist also for Romanians and, and Bulgarians, especially if we, we, we start the, the, the reckoning again back in October 1912. By 1918, these people are all, uh, these countries are all devastated, whether or not they ended up on the winning side or not. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, they, they've lost an entire generation. Uh, every one of these countries has, has had foreign troops on their soil uh, that impacts their, their economy, their infrastructure, not that either of these were that great. Uh, and so this is, this is the kind of condition they stagger into the interwar period. Mm-hmm. Uh, all of them. Uh, I, 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 you can go, uh, for instance, you go into Bulgaria in, in a little village and you see these these uh, monuments to the Balkan War and World War One dead. They're often all together, and they're just little uh, uh, they're they're little obelisks, concrete obelisks with with derogatory pictures of these these young boys jauntily uh, looking at the camera in their uniforms, and and they they lost a whole generation here. Mm-hmm. Tell us a little bit about what um, interwar. Balkans were like, because this well, is when we start to get concepts like Yugoslavia and attempts to bring the whole of the South Slavs together. Well, that, that concept actually had started back in the 19th century, uh, Yugoslavia, as, as a first, first of all, as a linguistic cultural issue. Uh, uh, the recognition that uh, the, the languages uh, spoken from the Alps to the Black Sea are all virtually the same. A little bit of difference. One, one observer remarked that if you if you uh, walked uh, from Slovenia, from Vilak up in the Alps to to the Black Sea, the language would change just a little bit in every village. <laughs> I, I suppose that speaks to the remoteness of all of these areas. Many well, people there will not have had many links beyond the next village. Right. Too. But it also it also is saying you know. Excuse me. Really, this is this is all the same people. They're all the same language. Um, you just need to to know that. I'm, now, of course, modern Slovenian is quite different from modern Bulgarian, but the if, the language spoken in Niš in southern Serbia is quite similar to the language spoken you know, just about a uh, hundred miles away in uh, Sofia, Bulgaria. Mm, yes, I, I've driven that road, and they were remarkably close. So we've got Yugoslavia starting to emerge as a, as a uh, almost a, a synthetic country, but based upon relatively close ties. Uh, we have Romania and Bulgaria, which, are, which also have fairly rocky interwar periods, and also Albania and, and Greece. Is there any yeah, kind of it, simple way that you can help people understand, you know, what's happening in this interwar period? Well, the, they all have... A, the, the first thing to keep in mind is, like I said earlier, they all had suffered from the First World War. In terms mm-hmm. of population, uh, in terms of materially, uh, they all uh, uh, had struggled to recover from from their immense losses of the war. They all tried to adopt uh, uh, Western models of democracy, parliament, elections. They all failed in this regard. Uh, some of the failures were a lot more uh, spectacular than others. The Albania, which which only emerged as an independent country. Independence had been proclaimed in 1912, but uh, the war really prevented any kind of meaningful uh, development there. Uh, Albania soon lapsed into uh, uh, sort of a comic opera monarchy. Is it true, and this is a, it's an odd 
uh, story that I've heard before, that the Albanian throne was actually offered to an international cricket player from England called C.B. Fry. Is that correct? I, I'm not aware of that. It was offered. I know one candidate was a professional clown. <laughs> well, that's almost better. But uh, yeah. C.B. Fry seems to be one of those uh, one of those Englishmen from an earlier age that I think he played cricket and football for England and was a uh, very well connected. And at some point, I, I'd heard that he was offered the Albanian throne as a way of trying to hold the country together. It may be true there. There, there, there are so many of these. Uh, uh, there were a lot of English men and women who played an important role in, uh, at the beginning of the 20th century in this whole region. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, they, and many of them left uh, valuable writings. They, they took passions for. Uh, uh, there's a, a woman, Mary Edith Dunn, who who was especially interested in the Albanians and, and spent uh, a lot of time there. And. and uh, and a number of other of English men who who did there. So uh, this well could be the case. Mm. Okay, and then we end up with the Second World War. I, I know that we're scooting through the history quite quickly at a rate of knots here, but there is so much to cover with so many oh. different countries. And, sure, uh, sure. And uh, we want to be able to keep this relatively tight. So in the Second World War, you end up with uh, with a patchwork of, of some places that end up on the Axis side, and I'm thinking about Romania and Bulgaria, and other ones that actually are occupied by, by the Germans, by the Nazis. Well, the... Before the war broke out, the Germans uh, had, on the strength of their economic recovery, had more or less uh, managed to get the entire region in economic thrail. Mm -hmm. Uh, And and they were, and these countries, Yugoslavia, Bulgaria, Romania, were happy to do it, Mm -hmm. were happy to to, uh, tie their economies to the Germans because it meant access to consumer goods, uh, and then ultimately for them, prosperity. And, and, and the late uh, part of the, uh, the late 30s, they, they all were beginning to prosper. Mm-hmm. Uh, they all beginning to get out of the, the depressions a little bit. Uh, and so when the Germans begin to make other demands, uh, it's not that easy to wriggle out of them. Mm-hmm. And this means that uh, you end up with countries such as Romania and Bulgaria and later the, the Croatian Ustashi regime actually come across to the Axis side and take, take part in some of the big operations. Uh, certainly uh, the battles on the Eastern Front often in, involved a lot of Hungarian, obviously slightly further north, Romanian and Bulgarian troops. No Bulgarians. No Bulgarians, no Bulgarians on the Eastern Front. on the Eastern Front. Okay. The Bul- the Bulgarian uh, czar, Boris, was very careful mm-hmm. not to place his, his uh, troops in, in uh, confronting the Russians. They had fought the Russians in the First World War, mm-hmm. uh, but he didn't, want to, uh, he didn't want to do that again in the Second World War. So the Bulgarians did not participate in the Eastern Front. The Romanians were the Germans' most important ally on the Eastern Front. They, they contributed two whole armies. Uh, they contributed the oil and much of the meat uh, to make that uh, that campaign possible, and they suffered tremendously, like the Germans. They they lost uh, two armies at Stalingrad. Absolutely, uh, the they, well, they were they were guarding the flanks, weren't they, on the route were, to Stalingrad? And they were the bits exactly that right. were were flanked by the Soviet Red Army in uh, Operation Uranus, I think. Was, That's was right. It? That was the whole point of the operation was to go through the relatively weak Romanian Third and Fourth Armies. Uh, and then trap the, the Germans there. Uh, the Romanians in the Second World War lost more men uh, than the Americans did. Mm-hmm. That's extraordinary. 
Um, what, what, uh, can we look at the Western Balkans for a second? Because here sure. you had the, uh, a bit of what you might be able to call Italian adventurism, uh, going through Albania and Corfu and into Greece and having to be bailed out perhaps by the, uh, right. by, by, by the Nazis. And then just before the Nazis actually invade uh, the Soviet Union in Operation Barbarossa, they invade and uh, occupy Yugoslavia itself. And this brings a lot of tensions to the to the surface. That's right. The uh, in fact, the the Yugoslav government had signed uh, an alliance with the uh, with the Nazis in the spring of '41, and uh, this was rejected by a group of Serbian Air Force officers uh, in contact who had been in contact with British intelligence, and they overthrew the government that had signed the. Uh, and signed the deal with the Germans, and this infuriated Hitler, uh, who was already planning to invade Greece in order to save his ally uh, Mussolini, uh, and to not not coincidentally uh, to uh, protect the remaining oil fields at Ploest uh, from uh, the RAF, which was then in Greece. Mm-hmm. And Hitler was afraid that the RAF might start bombing uh, Ploest uh, from from fields there. Uh, so uh, he then used this opportunity to, it took one week to go through Yugoslavia. Uh, yes. And uh, many of the Yugoslav soldiers by this time were so disaffected from the regime, uh, here I'm talking about Croatian soldiers, that they, they would not fight. Mm. There are two big themes to draw out here, one of which was uh, the Croatian Ustashi state. It's a fascist group um, right. coming back into Croatia uh, and saying, right, it's time for us to impose our will on the Serbs, who, of course, dominated Yugoslavia. Um, right. And they were said to be so uh, brutal in their suppression of the Serbs that uh, even the Nazis were said to be disgusted at them. Yeah, so- uh, sorry, I was about to say in the second theme, which I wouldn't mind if you could touch upon, was the resistance because Yugoslavia with all of its mountains and streams and so on was such a a perfect uh, partisan uh, warfare theater that you had a lot of um, resistance against the Nazis and this led to a very large and important split between the the royalists the Chetniks under uh, Mihailovic and the communist partisans under Tito. Right. Um, the uh, first of all, let me let me explain that the Ustashi was was not the preferred governing body. The, the Germans and Italians both wanted to set up a a much less, as you say, brutal regime. But but no one would cooperate with them. Uh, so they brought the Ustashi, who had been more or less uh, uh, hiding out in Italy, uh, to do the deal. Um, and 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 just you're, you're quite right. The Ustashi were were incredibly brutal uh, with in, in their uh, behavior to the uh, regions they controlled, mainly Croatia uh, and uh, Bosnia. Uh, then this, this resistance builds up. There, there, there are many different kinds of, of things going on in Yugoslavia during the Second World War, but the two main ones are uh, the Chetniks, who, who are Serbs, and who are saying, let's restore Serbia the way it was before the war, or Yugoslavia the way it was before the war. Uh, and then after the invasion of Soviet Russia in June 41, uh, the communists start to uh, play a role in the resistance. They had not done that before because uh, ostensibly Nazi Germany and, and Soviet Russia were allies. 
but after the invasion of Soviet Russia, then the communists offer a an alternative vision of Yugoslavia. We're going to get away from Serbian domination. We're going to uh, have a federal state. Uh, we're all going to benefit from from uh, Yugoslavia, and and so these two visions of the post World War of the post war Yugoslavia uh, soon came into conflict with each other. And the Western Allies threw their lot in with uh, Tito and the communist ones. Well, that's right. Famously, Churchill, uh, uh, when he was being told that the uh, the partisans, Tito's people, were fighting and. Uh, and and that they were, but that they were communist. Uh, I think it was Fitzroy McLean. Uh, Churchill said, "Well, are you planning to live in Yugoslavia uh, after the war?" And and his uh, reporter said, "No, I'm not." Uh, and he said, "Neither am I. The communists are killing Nazis." Oddly enough, Fitzroy McLean is one of my heroes. I, I've argued long and hard uh, uh, with my wife about maybe calling a son of ours Fitzroy, but uh, <laughs> I, I think it's been uh, I think it's been a, a losing battle. But anyway, what we're getting at here is is a. Uh, and let's concentrate on Yugoslavia, otherwise we'll go all over the place. But Yugoslavia itself, after the war, it, by the time the Nazis are defeated, uh, the natural heirs to Yugoslavia are Josip Broz Tito and the communists. And right, this, right. Is, this then becomes part of a, uh, a region-wide trend of, first of all, Soviet influence and dominance, and then a pushback against Soviet influence and dominance, certainly in Yugoslavia right. and Albania. Could, could you just give a few words about those? Right, he he was initially the most uh, vehement uh, communist uh, presence in the in the region, but uh, very quickly came to resent uh, the Sovietization of his country, uh, and uh, with things like, uh, why are we having Soviet military advisors? We won our own war, mm-hmm. or or uh, why are we having having the presence of the Soviet? Uh, Intelligence service were being treated the same way as Bulgarians and Romanians who fought on the on the side of Nazis, mm-hmm. and this led to the split, uh, which was uh, 1948. Uh, the Yugoslavs like to say that it that it actually occurred on here on here we go again 28 June. If we look at uh, Yugoslavia and Albania, uh, in a sense, this pushback against uh, against the Soviets uh, led. To- two slightly different outcomes. Albania becomes a, a more grotesquely isolated and, and bizarre Stalinist state um, with, with many links to, to uh, Mao's China. And Yugoslavia becomes, a, you know, a, an important part of the non-aligned movement, moving well, first, almost the away Albanians from... Used, uh, from used the split with the Yugoslavs to yeah. split from the Yugoslavs. Up until that time, they had been a satellite of Yugoslavia. Okay. And famously, Stalin told Tito he could swallow Albania if he wanted to. Mm-hmm. Uh, after that, uh, then uh, when when uh, uh, Khrushchev uh, begins to uh, be friendly with the Americans uh, in the early 60s, or begins to try to achieve something with the Americans, uh, the Albanians uh, famously go with the Chinese or, and split off from the uh, from the Russians, and their slogan was then, we and the Chinese are a billion strong. <laughs> but uh, Yugoslavia becomes the, a much more comfortable place to live compared to Albania. Yes, and, and you, you were quite right. It's a, I, a bizarre... Uh, uh, place I've never been there. Have you? I have. Yes, it was. Uh, it was a, 
slightly bizarre as well. I drove down there from Sarajevo to, I can't remember what the exact reason was, but it was January and drive down to the coast of, of Montenegro and down along the, the coast. Beautiful country. And I'd been in Kosovo a lot, so I knew how friendly many uh, Albanians were. But, uh, very, very surreal. Um, you, would, you would just see very, very strange sights on the streets of Tirana, like a, a, a couple of guys sat in armchairs on the top of a, a truck that was going by and they were busy playing chess and chatting, you know, as if it was the most normal thing on earth and potholes all over the place. This is, after all, Europe's, I think, second poorest country and I managed to right, fall down right. a pothole just after I arrived. Uh, but lovely people, but very, very, very chaotic as a country. Yeah, still, still has big problems. Absolutely. Uh, I'd very like, much like to see it, but haven't <laughs> been able to. It, it's quite an experience. I, I thoroughly recommend it. I thoroughly recommend it. Um, this is all leaving, leading inexorably to, uh, to, the, to the big event that most people, certainly my own generation and many other generations around the world, know of Yugoslavia or, or, or first was really aware of Yugoslavia, and that is the Yugoslav Wars. Um, 1989, the former fall of communism came and went, and you had people like Ceausescu, the longtime dictator of, of Romania, killed famously with his wife on Christmas Day, I believe, uh, in 1989. Yugoslavia held together for a couple of years, but there were big, big, big currents that were already being exploited there and uh, centrifugal forces. Without getting into too much detail, because this is where it again gets once again extremely complicated, can you give us a bit of, bit of an overview of what happened in, in Yugoslavia when uh, communism started to, to, to break at the seams? Well, what's happened is, uh, what happened is that with communism seemingly no longer having any legitimacy as a basis for power, mm -hmm. uh, then uh, the, the political elite in Yugoslavia fall, fell back on the earlier model of nationalism. Mm -hmm. And this, uh, led to, uh, this led to conflict. Uh, the main uh, problem was that cer certain parts of Yugoslavia, uh, notably Bosnia, uh, and uh, uh, south, uh, southern Croatia uh, were ethnically mixed. And, mm -hmm. and so that a national resolution there was, was not possible. Uh, in order to, to preserve, pa famously, um, I, I think it's Laurel Silver in her book says, and I think she's, she's right on it, Yugoslavia uh, did not uh, die, it was murdered. It was murdered by people like Milosevic, the Serbian uh, leader, former communist, uh, Franjo Tuđman, uh, the Croatian uh, counterpart. I think these are the two guys most responsible for the demise of Yugoslavia. I think it's fair to call them ethnic entrepreneurs. They, they, they seized upon the ethnic issue as the way of really furthering their own that, end, that, ends. Especially, that sounds good. Yeah, that, especially that's a good Milosevic. way to look at it. Absolutely. Uh, let's just give a bit of a picture of, the, of what Yugoslavia then became. First, you had Slovenia, which was a relatively small, almost Austrian little state in the north, yeah. and that managed to get away. Croatia Prosperous. and Serbia were the two bigger ones. Serbia dominated the JNA, the, 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 the army. That's right. And That's then right. you had a couple of other states, but the most important of them, as you mentioned earlier, was Bosnia itself, just to cut a long story short. And the reason for that is that it was the most ethnically mixed of, of all of the parts of, of Yugoslavia. It had a lot right. of Muslims, Catholic communities who associated themselves with Catholic um, Croatia, and then it had many Bosnian Serbs, Orthodox communities who associated themselves with, uh, with Serbia. Right, right. 
So, right. so a perfect uh, microcosm of, of, of this whole region, really. Right. And in 1992, when it's clear uh, because of the independence of declarations of Croatia and Slovenia that, that Yugoslavia is not going to last, the, the Muslims, or, or what they call themselves now Bosniaks, uh, and the Croats uh, held a referendum to, for an independent Cro- uh, Bosnia, and the Serbs said, if, if, if this is going to be the case, we want to be with Serbia. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is what uh, started the tragedy then of, of the war there. Absolutely. Uh, fighting between uh, the Serbs trying to stay with Serbia uh, and the Muslims and initially Croats uh, to be independent. Later in the war, the, the Croats will, will uh, make a move to uh, unify with Croatia, and they won't, at least they haven't been able to pull that off uh, yet. But, but this is still in flux. Absolutely. And it leads to this bloody war with uh, 200,000, 300,000 or so people killed, uh, genocide being perpetrated. You have the, these horrendous massacres in places like Srebrenica by uh, people associated with Ratko Mladic, who, of course, is the military right. leader who's only just been caught and is, is only just now being put on trial in The Hague. But one thing I do want to touch upon is the fact that uh, the other European nations, the main European nations, were very reluctant to get involved in, in this horrible situation in Bosnia, even though they could see the refugees, they could see, the, they could see the, the pictures from the siege of Sarajevo with people being killed by sniper and, and gunfire all the time. They could hear all of the dead, dreadful stories of people coming in from places such as eastern Bosnia, where dreadful ethnic cleansing had taken place. And yet the European nations were kind of reluctant to, to get involved at first. I have a question connected to that. And do you, do you think that that is anything to do with the, the image that the Balkans as a whole have among the rest of Europe? I, I think that was part of the reason. Uh, but I think another important reason was that, that Europe was starting to coalesce around newly unified Germany. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Germany was, was just starting to uh, test its political wings. Uh, and the, the image of German troops in the Balkans again mm-hmm. uh, appealed to no one. Mm-hmm. And so with the Germans not doing anything, if not the Germans, then who? Yes. Became well, the, the Americans, of course, ended up playing a very it, important it, role in ending the... These the... horrific pictures of, of uh, Sarajevo under siege, uh, and then... Uh, uh, the, the the capstone to the whole deal was, of course, the the horrors at, at Srebrenica. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, it was a very sad, sad period in in European history that that made us search for what we meant by the West being a supposedly civilized place. And then the whole the whole sorry business was not repeated, but there was another episode with ep- with echoes uh, of Bosnia, and that was in Kosovo in, in the late 90s, where once again Milosevic stirred up ethnic trouble in a southern province called Kosovo, which is majority Albanian. And again, well, we had a repeat of this horrible business. He had a problem after the expulsion of the Serbian population from southern Croatia, mm-hmm. and he needed to put them someplace. And so he started to to consider uh, settling them down in Kosovo, which by this time had a uh, 90% Albanian minority. Uh, and this helped to spark the problem uh, then uh, that arose there in, in Kosovo. 
Mm, absolutely. And the whole history of the Balkans seems to, to, to lead to this moment in my mind. Uh, certainly when I worked as a correspondent in Sarajevo, one of the sad things I felt was that it was so difficult to be able to talk about just about any event without having to reference one or other of the, the dreadful wars that had taken place. But luckily, and with a, a great deal of, of hard work, much of which is still lying ahead of, of people in the Balkans, things are starting to change. We have Slovenia is now part of the European Union, joining in the wider Balkans, Romania, Bulgaria and Greece. And other parts of the, the Balkans are starting to, for instance, edge towards the European Union membership, yes, which is something that, that, that you end your book on. Yes, Croatia, in fact, just uh, received word uh, within the last month or so that they were now uh, 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 would be in the Union in the, by uh, 20, uh, 2012, I believe. I think 2012 is what, is what most people talk about. Okay. Uh, certainly a but remarkable they've got the comp- turnaround. They've got the confirmation, and, and this is, to a big degree, this should, should uh, encourage the Serbs, because the Croats turned over their, their war, some of their war criminals. Uh, As we were saying, Richard, you've got an enormous amount of history in a relatively small, slim volume. And as we've just been talking about uh, these dreadful wars connected to the breakup of Yugoslavia, it's fairly evident that that much of this history has been rather unhappy. But you you really hold out hopes that Balkan history is going to be far more positive in the future, don't you? Yes, I I, I think that uh, they have great potential to realize uh, to realize the uh, stability and prosperity uh, along the lines of, of the rest of Europe. They very they have a great desire to do this, uh, and uh, uh, after all they've been through, uh, I think they deserve it. Absolutely. Well, one of the difficulties with with modern day Balkans is that history is almost something that becomes divisive and 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 you you fear stepping back into history because then it it leads you up another potentially divisive little garden path um but one thing that you've done in your book is is show how the history actually develops over time and it's so clear-headed do you think that that long view of balkan history actually aids understanding or do you think it, it gives people ammunition for all of the bad things that have happened well i think i think both history history is always a multi-sided sword uh, but but I I think the long term has the advantage uh, of demonstrating to the the peoples there that that they have uh, things more in common uh, than 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 uh, things being divisive for them. Uh, they they share uh, the the convoluted geography. They share the complex uh, culture uh, and and the events and uh, the the. Uh, historical events, and, and this, this can just as easily tie them together as uh, keep them apart. Uh, but the other thing is, I think that they see now that the European Union, uh, with all the problems it's had, is still much better uh, than any, uh, any institution or any concept uh, for development uh, that they've seen in the past. And, and so... The European Union is the way to, uh, it's a thing to pursue. Uh, now, for instance, in Bulgaria, when you, uh, I was last there two years ago, and, and during some local elections, and the candidates are all falling over themselves to insist that they are the candidate of the European Union. Mm, absolutely. It's most impressive. Well, 
I can only say thank you for writing this book because uh, to, to actually be able to compress all of this into such a slim, understandable volume is is no mean task. Uh, it's a it's a cracking book, and it's been. I know that we've we've scooted through certain bits of Balkan history at breakneck pace, but I, it, it's been necessary to be able to squeeze in an area with, with perhaps the most concentrated history of any area that I know of into one little interview. So thank you very much indeed for that. Thank you, Nicholas. That was my interview with Richard Hall, author of a superb book called The Modern Balkans, A History. I recommend it as a clear and lucid guide to a fascinating and often bloody region. This is Nicholas Walton from New Books in European Studies, wishing you a good day from here in London. Thank you.